I'm recording and I'm I've got video up. Cookie, are you recording? Cookie. Cookie. Uh, oh, we've lost him. That's a shame. Uh July it's July 29th, 2018, episode 77 of Fancy Ramen. I'm Neil and I'm Scott. And uh yeah, this is the episode without Cookie. He is in Kansas. He's doing Scott things, I think he told us, meaning he's Probably outdoors, probably getting lost, and probably having to find food in the wilderness of some sort. That sounds about right. Normally, I pack some food in with me. Like, that's the only thing that's slightly different is, you know, I don't resort to, like, eating bark off of trees within the first couple hours. But sometimes you're confused because you're eating cliff bars and they kind of taste like bark off of a tree. Yeah. Uh, do you not, you're not a fan of the cliff bar. I'll no, actually it. I, I like, I like most of the flavors. I've had a few that are kind of rough, you know, though, they have some weird stuff, the flavor or the bar that I have not found one I've liked at all is the, uh, Lara Lar bar. Oh, something. Lara bars or yeah, I know what you're talking about. Those are the, they're like entirely fruit protein or whatever. Um, they're vegan bars. I've had a couple of them because uh, Sierra has brought them around. I actually, I like those too. I'm not fond of the way I feel like my teeth are always going to collapse in on themselves when I eat them. Like the taste yeah. is actually pretty fine. Uh, but I, maybe if it would dissolve better, I would just suck on them <laughs> as opposed to chew on them. But the... They have a unique flavor set because I think I had like an apple pie one that tasted pretty solid. But again, I felt like I was I was worried about pulling the teeth straight from my socket as I chewed on them. Which Yeah. Uh, have you ever... I used to like let Jolly Ranchers sit on my teeth and kind of dissolve and then pull them apart. But then I worried that like I was just going to pull a tooth out of its socket one of these days uh, when I was a kid. It's a bad feeling. No good. Uh, this apparently is now the podcast where dentists, uh, will listen only for pain, only for pain. Trying to figure out my ideal mic setup. Um, trying out new angles. Yeah. We'll see how this works. I, I kind of like it. Uh, let's see. Yesterday I played a little bit of tennis and enjoyed a large, like farmer's market festival in a smaller town called Hamilton where I have some family at. And so I got to actually see quite a bit of family on my uh, dad's mom's side or my paternal grandma's side. So like mini family reunion, that was cool. Um, I've gone to, I don't, did I bring it up last week? I went and saw um, the new like Lakeith Stanfield, uh, Tessa Thompson movie, Sorry to Bother You, which was pretty pretty wild. A very interesting movie. Um, I don't know if I want to talk about it though, but I thought it was I thought it was uh, an entertaining indie film for sure. Are those like famous actors slash actresses? So Lakeith Stanfield 
is like he's kind of like an up-and-coming actor from what i can tell he's one of the characters in uh the show atlanta and then tessa thompson has been on a couple big screen movies uh she's in the marvel uh universe she plays what is it she plays valkyrie i think so i saw her for the first time in thor ragnarok but i i've seen her on the television and other roles too so is this kind of like the equivalent of what uh 500 days of summer was like because neither zoe de chanel or joseph gordon levitt were necessarily like a-list names when that came out uh yeah, I I would guess so. Um I feel like 500 Days of Summer though was probably I don't know, this has a super uh indie and just weird erratic vibe to its uh construction and presentation. Like there is a portion of it in which they have like a claymation like commercial that appears in the middle of the movie and it's just this weird like there's just a lot of weird, like, I don't know if it's particularly meant to just be jarring to add to the, um, what's the word? Like, it's a surrealist kind of film. So I don't know if it's meant to be jarring and surrealist as part of the theme of the film, or if it's just like trying another weird genre to kind of like mesh it in with everything else. It's, it's weird. I I'm having I have a really hard time describing it because it's kind of all over the place. But the basic premise is like with Keith Stanfield's character gets uh, hired at a call center and goes from being like a lowly employee to a power caller, which um, instead of selling like who knows encyclopedias over the phone, he's like making huge uh, business deals for like large multinational or global organizations and it's like his moral struggle to earn his money and get his at the uh acknowledgement that it's coming at, at a like large cost to others in society it's a very uh it's definitely got some um like like socially progressive or literally like socialist vibes to it as far as films go um but it's also incredibly funny. Like, there's a lot of great humor in it. In uh, one of the office scenes in the very beginning of the movie, there you can see in the background, like, some people are dealing with a printer error, and there are just, like, sheets flying in the background in this office, like, just paper being cascaded up. Like, uh, when you see those old game shows with the money wind tunnels, and it just gets, like, progressively worse and more intense as the shot progresses. Like, every time it cuts back, there's just more paper and people are just, like, gathering around watching it just start to uh, flood the room with shooting papers everywhere and lights are flickering. So, it's really, it's really entertaining. When you were talking about the claymation portion of it, is that actually set within universe? So, it's, like... Someone flips on a TV and there it yeah. is. Or does it actually... Yeah. Okay. It's not like a movie. No, the movie in. doesn't change to claymation, which would be even crazier. But it does go from being a relatively... like It goes from being a, a relatively um, like believable plot to just this um, dissension into like near madness for the viewer and the people involved. Like 
from a standard film perspective in which you could say like this is a realistic fiction to this is starting to progress into like almost a there's like almost a sci-fi horror element that integrates itself to the film later and it's like i don't want to spoil anything for it but it just does this like uh evolution into different film genre by the end of it uh yeah that's that's probably the best i can describe it i feel like i'm very under equipped to actually talk about this film in full detail what did those four years in film critic school uh go towards huh I didn't, I, I have spent zero, zero minutes, zero hours in any sort of like education towards film critique. So really I'm, I'm a, maybe the worst person to get movie advice from. It wasn't like one of those easy credits you could do. That's what I did at UNL. I did, I did uh, some music appreciation stuff. Yeah, Um, I did that too. That was a waste of time. That's pretty, that's pretty easy for anybody who's listened to music regularly. So uh, that worked out for me. Film appreciation and like film critique. I listened to one podcast that uh, I listened to two podcasts that do that. And I feel like I've gotten most of my understanding of film from just listening to those. But it's like it's passive education. And both of them are more meant for entertainment than for actual education. So it's like few and far between where I actually get a nugget of really valuable uh, takeaways. But yeah, that's uh, that's been my week for the most part. Have you been just slogging it out at work still? Well, yeah, although I think that time's basically come to an end. I had the, uh, the chance to uh, actually get off at reasonable times towards the end of this week. Uh, though I spent most of that messing around with the new sous vide and uh, also getting both computers operating and like a somewhat functional workflow at the same time. And uh, I mean, first to, to tackle the less interesting topic, which is the computers, I would probably say it's nice now being able to render out like episodes at a time of whatever Let's Play, uh, let's play or LP uh, while still being able to use the other PC, be it just, just for anything, because you don't necessarily want to do things like play games or do any sort of extreme uh, taxing browsing like, you know, streaming videos or anything like that uh, on the same computer that you're rendering on, especially if it's CPU uh, CPU based rendering. But uh, I don't know. I It never occurred to me that the question of how to get a keyboard and mouse to work on two computers would have to be so complex. Uh, and it seems like it'd be fine if you just had the most bland and boring keyboard and mouse uh, especially with the old school inputs because they have KVM switches uh, that will just route those old connectors. I, I, They're kind of like serial connectors in the regards that there's multiple ports, but it's condensed down to like a barrel style uh, connection actually instead of USB. But the USB sw- uh, KVM switches I've been looking at all seem to have like a very different very differing experiences across the board. Uh, some people saying that, like, if you have anything that has any sort of firmware or connects to an app at all, it starts to become an issue. If or if you have like a multiple button mouse, uh, aside from like your scroll wheel and your t- uh, your left and right, right things get complex. Essentially, mouse four and forward. 
Yeah. So I'm right now I just literally have two mice, a trackball and my regular mouse and two keyboards stationed in front of me so I can use either computer at once. Uh, and then just trying to figure out the best way to arrange my two monitors in a way that I can switch between the two computers. Uh, but boring talk aside, the sous vide just did some chicken breasts. Uh, they're pretty good. I cooked them for like two hours at 140. Um, I already think chicken is probably the plainest meat in the world. So yeah. like the, the texture was surprisingly good, uh, even though it was very cheap chicken as well so i'm looking forward to actually putting some real meat in it Um, yeah i assume you're gonna do like a steak sometime soon in the sous vide yeah definitely i i wanted to like experience exactly how it works first on some other lesser expensive meats so i also picked up some pork riblets i don't know how long those have to cook though so if it's like six seven hours that might be tomorrow or something else excuse me but uh that's been that was pretty fun and uh I would say it's surprising how well it turned out given that I like opened up the box for the sous vide and realized that there were no instructions and just like in a step by step way to like set it up and then another set of instructions to hook it up to your phone and download the app and I'm like I'm not fucking using the app maybe that is gonna tell me how not to shock myself but I think I can just figure this out on my own and it turned out okay uh, but we're, we'll see I, I'm really really curious about uh, like it, it. it's gonna be hard for me to buy that first few steaks because steak is expensive and like you also you need a thick cut otherwise there's no point to using the sous vide like if i'm going to get like an 8 ounce new york strip like if i try and sear that afterwards it's going to end up cooking it well anyways yeah uh, i i bought so, a cast iron uh which i've had one in the past a real small one and that thing uh like it it did its job for like a one man cooking uh device in college but I don't think I necessarily did the best to actually keep up with its maintenance. So I wanted to ask you, Scott, since you are the master of seasoning uh, cast iron, uh, I I have a pre-seasoned cast iron, and I didn't necessarily want to go through the trouble of seasoning it over. Like Mm -hmm. I read that you could use salts to wear it down and then re-season it. Yeah. if I don't want to season it again for the time being, is there something I can do? Like what's the best practice to utilize it as it is right now? So you've used it quite a bit and you just feel like it's kind of lacking, lacking some of that seasoning. Oh no, I, I haven't used it yet. So you haven't I, used but it I, at all. But I bought it's, a pre-seasoned. It's pre-seasoned. Okay. Yeah. You can pretty much, I mean, if it's pre-seasoned, you can pretty much roll with it. I'd start cooking foods right away that you kind of want to get a transfer of flavor from okay um so like a great thing to start out with for instance since you're in an omnivorous household like fry up some bacon in that and then you know obviously don't let the bacon fat solidify around it but leave enough behind that the iron kind of soaks it up a little bit and then you know, the next time you make pancakes, you may actually get some of that, say, maybe smokier or like umami flavor kind of baked into the pancake. It may take a couple of times with that. So like I primarily 
I think I use my cast iron skillet very frequently for, for like frying eggs. And so I normally have, uh, depending on what I'm feeling like butter or olive oil. And that also depends on like what fat I have to cook with. Um, I use those for my fried eggs and then I essentially let the pan cool down, get any of the remaining like oil or whatnot poured out of it and then give the pan like afterward just a quick wipe over with a paper towel um, and make sure that it has uh, like oil of some sort or some fat, like essentially just coating all of the metal that you'll cook with to the point where it has just a little bit of a sheen or a gloss to it. And that'll like, that'll as it dries and kind of evaporates, just kind of get into the cookware. You can also cook it in by putting it in the oven and just kind of like baking some of that in with it being pre-seasoned. It should work just fine. So when I'm done cooking something, we'll say, uh, searing some riblets tonight. In fact, Mm -hmm. do I end up like, I, I'm, I don't, I obviously don't scrub it, but do I use any soap at all to give it like a wash down? Never, never ever use soap it will it'll soak up the soap and you will taste soap for the rest of the life of that cast iron you can't use soap um it is one it's actually one of those uh items that you really don't want to bother with like cleaning too much so when you want to get things that have stuck to your pan out just pour in water and boil it and use that use that boiling water with like a scraper or, and normally do something like a plastic scraper. Or if you're feeling, you know, confident enough, use just like a washcloth or something and kind of like scrape at the bits or the the detritus that you don't want in the pan. That is just essentially food waste that's sitting there, get it out of the pan, let the water dry. And then once again, give it an oil or a fat treatment of some sort, just with a paper towel. So it'll soak it back up. Um, and that'll do it. Like you won't have to worry about reseasoning it unless you really mess it up somehow or like scour off the seasoning with steel wool. Interesting. Also, don't cook too many acidic foods with it in a row. Yeah, I I, I had I did uh, hear that. Yeah, so avoid like if you're going to be using tomatoes in something, like avoid doing something with tomatoes a couple times in the cast iron skillet because that acid will just kind of eat through the seasoning that you have. Um, and it's not good for the iron either. I'm thinking um, this pan will mostly just be used for searing meats at this point. But I th- like once it once it gets seasoned in a little a little stronger and starts to retain more of that nonstick like property. Yeah, and I just guess make sure say. you're using use an ample amount of fat when you start. Like it's a good idea to just kind of overcompensate with a little bit more fat than you usually would. Yeah. And it'll be pretty non-stick in that way. And because of its absorb absorption qualities, it will. I wonder if it's actually more like adsorption. That's a that's probably a tangent for another time. But um, you, you mean will, where like the pan itself is not actually just absorbing the oils, but it's it actually in? growing a layer of. Yeah, because adsorption means that like things are being attached to the surface, while absorption means it's actually being like retained on the interior of whatever the object is. So what would it um, be though if like, cause I, 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 I know cast iron or iron in general is like a porous material. So is it adsorption so it probably or is absorption? absorption? 
Yeah, it probably is AB versus AD. So I'm thinking UB, AB, absorption, but maybe I, I don't know for sure. It's absorption on the macro level, adsorption on the micro. I, I don't know if that's actually true or not. I think maybe the reverse there. But wouldn't it like, so if it's a porous object, the oils are going into the pores of the iron and solidifying there. Which would be a mic, that would be a micro scale action, right? But in macro maybe. scale, when we're looking at it, the oils and fats are like readily available on the outside because yeah, of their which permeation is a macro. through it. Okay. Yeah. Welcome sense. to Fancy Ramen, the actual cooking podcast. <laughs> it's taken it's taken me uh, almost seventy episodes to turn it around and in, into the direction, but uh, we're getting there. Oh, one of my I just friends to abandon cookie in the woods. One one of my friends actually brought up. Uh, they were listening to the podcast and they said that tonkatsu ramen is not a thing unless you like to put your pork, uh, your your pork chop. He he said it something different. Uh, I can't think of what he calls it though. Cutlet. Your pork cutlet, and submerge it into your ramen, and that it's actually See, tonkotsu. Okay, I thought yeah, I thought that tonkatsu was the fried pork cutlet itself. Yep, it and is. So the tonkatsu ramen was just ramen that was indicating that it had the fried pork cutlet in it. There's but so much complexity to ramen that we actually don't know that makes uh. Makes us a bad ramen advice podcast for now. <laughs> it, instead, we'll get tonkotsu, there. K-O, is oh that the fried pork ramen, essentially. But not like bad okay. uh, pork cutlet or breaded pork cutlet, I guess. Okay. It's the pork belly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So there you go, Dan. That one's for you. Yeah. Um, uh, I was going to just point out, though, that aside from all of that nonsense, uh, I also was thinking about changing podcast um, hosts or you, we'll say tools for our RSS feed uh, because I fucking hate what we're using right now, which is like simply podcasting from WordPress or it's a WordPress app. So there's a chance that if you're listening to this episode or, or actually, I, I'll just say rather, there's a chance if you're one of our RSS feed listeners of subscribers aka you've listened to the audio you might see the episode list change drastically in due time uh, hopefully nothing will change in terms of the feed url so you won't have to change anything but if we suddenly have one episode again and that happens to be 78 or 79 or whatever uh don't be alarmed that's probably just because i ended up switching utilities so uh video games what have you been playing this week I played a touch of Octopath Traveler. Um, I think since we spoke last, I've completed some of the like second chapter tasks. And I am starting to appreciate the storylines a little bit more. Uh, they, are, they are really progressing down different paths in tone, which is really nice. Like We can say that they, they already were uh, different in tone from the start of some of them like i don't think anyone can say that tress's path is particularly like dark, dark or sinister. yeah she's like i'm gonna follow this journal and be a great merchant and i'm like i'm so glad i selected the most whimsical and just like non-serious plot as the main one that i have because her second storyline remains relatively whimsical she's like oh this 
these capitalist practices are bad. Um, and now I have a merchant <laughs> rival. And so she's like coming to just very obvious conclusions that a naive merchant probably would. Um, meanwhile, progressing down, say, Primrose's path or uh, who else did I go through? Cyrus's path. Cyrus's path gets dark really quickly. Like his takes quite the turn um, as he encounters... I don't know if it qualifies as like necromancy or blood magic at this point, but he's starting to get into the darker parts of like the, uh, I guess of the mystical arts and it's pretty cool. It, he has an interesting path and Primrose's, you know, storyline of revenge is progressing down what you would expect, like taking unorthodox means to, uh, execute her goals. And, and I mean, in the case, literally execute characters who have uh wronged her and her family i i just really like how uh how this the stories in this game are really branching out it does seem to me as though they actually took a bit of care and intention on making like eight relatively interesting and completely different stories from one another which I didn't know if it was going to be a gimmick as we proceeded further into the game where the stories actually all come together. Like I had some suspicion that it could work that way. There's still opportunity for everything to kind of come together in an overarching plot. Um, though it seems less likely as I progress forward in the game, the mechanics are, are still great. Like I'm enjoying, I'm starting to get to the point where, you know, instead of encountering lizard man one two and three i am now encountering lizard man four five six and they have some familiar weaknesses and other different weaknesses but they also have skill sets and abilities that are making the battles more challenging in a way that is not just relying on giving them like higher health and higher damage as the only differences they're starting to have a multitude of uh, different attacks and like elemental resistances are becoming more relevant for my characters. I wasn't very worried about that with the first round of uh, story quests. And now that I'm progressing outward, I feel like I need to build my party and think more and more tactically as I progress forward. If I'm not in some cases over leveled because Tressa, my main character is now hitting like into the thirties with her levels. And most of these recommended levels for the second paths are in the twenties. So she's like, she's obscenely powerful against some enemies, but if I still don't have the abilities to break enemies, she's less useful than you would expect a unit that has like 10 levels up on the enemies that it's fighting. Uh, which is also nice. It's another way to force your hand into experimenting with your party types without uh, making, without like the game directly making you change party through some other mechanic. Like you are being incentivized to do so as opposed to just grind through it. Um, and you're also not being forced to switch because of some storyline element or a. Uh, you're you're being allowed to make the decision of your own accord even if it is kind of a necessity to progress through the game i've uh 
I've gone through a couple of the chapter two quests, and I've also witnessed some of the story from Tiff playing uh, in later quests too. And I can say there's actually some, I'll, I'll maybe put it this way. There are some connections between stories that you don't necessarily even realize until after the fact, uh, which is actually really cool. Um, it, it, you know, when stories become more complex, the more you think about them, I appreciate that. And I think that's a sign of good writing, uh, assuming like the story up front is still enjoyable enough, the deeper you get into it, the better it gets, I guess, or the more complex it is. Uh, I think I think I'm like starting to develop, d- despite having the interactions between characters become more abundant. <clears throat> uh, I I do kind of wish that the game had taken maybe a a different approach with the eight protagonists, and this is like maybe this is definitely a critique or criticism on the game's fundamental as a whole. But I kind of wish that instead of having all of these eight characters together at the same time, because when some of the crossover or instances where characters meet characters and so forth, there's really no acknowledgement, even if you have a character from one person's past in your party, when you encounter that character. Like, I, I think this maybe goes... This is probably not a spoiler. Uh, Leon, the captain that you meet with Tress's first uh, first chapter, you will run into him again later. And despite having Tressa in the party, Tressa pays no mind or attention to him. And it's like, hey, this is like a dude that basically helped inspire your like your desire to travel and become an, an, an explorer. Yeah, this and- is like her hero. She would. Be, it would be very weird for her to just completely ignore his presence in yeah, any she, way. She kind of does. And that it's kind of a bummer. Part of me wishes that, like, had they just made the game eight separate protagonists and separate stories with their own companions, yes, that's a shit ton of more content, and likely they probably would have had worse characters as a result, or at least worse side characters. Um it would have it would have made the story that they're presently telling across these eight different characters' paths feel better because despite some of that banter, it doesn't really feel like there's always a whole lot of connection between those characters with them. And likewise, there are weird things that you end up committing or doing. Um, like, I, I won't go into details here, but like... I, I don't understand why a character, why each character w- would feel motivated to join in another character's quest, even if it goes against their soul principles. Like, for for Primrose, she's obviously on this quest, uh, as, as you know from her intro and from the demo, she wants to, you know, seek revenge for her father's murder. Uh, you have a lot of characters that, like, I don't think inherently want to kill anyone ever. Yeah, and Alfin, for instance, is trying to help and heal, and why is he? Yeah, why is he <laughs> using his axe to condemn a guy who did something wrong to Primrose? How many decades ago? Yeah, it's yeah. And I, I have some like I have some issues with that, and partly the fact that Romancing Saga and Saga Frontier, uh, which I I. I think a lot of people would agree with me. This game gets a lot of its inspiration for its storytelling from, uh, those games definitely rely on the different narrative point of views to 
force the player or at least the stories to go in very very different directions like you might play as a warmonger in one part and then you play as like a young adventurous little girl in another part and their stories are very radically different like we see here but we don't have the murderous warmonger helping the little girl find flowers for someone or some bullshit yeah like, I, I don't know if that's tress's storyline or not i haven't i haven't seen uh her uh any of her other chapters yet okay yeah but, but it, it you you make a great point uh especially with like primroses is such an easy one to pick on but there is banter right after primrose has a flashback about her like family motto and Ulbrich is like it's good to follow a family motto honorable and respectable and it's like <laughs> yeah that's totally right dude let's go murder this guy you know <laughs> Wh- <laughs> which have you- the motto so you haven't done his chapter three yet right i haven't even done his chapter two Oh, oh, Which oh! He's I chasing tell you. down the Black Knight in the Colosseum or whatever. Yeah, his chapter two is pretty cool. Um, I, I love Colosseums in RPGs in general. I love Colosseums from how they were implemented in Fire Emblem, to the sort of WrestleMania Colise- Colosseum in Super Mario or Paper Mario Thousand Year Door. Like, I think a Colosseum storyline is so good for whatever reason. I am hooked by those. Did you uh, get to the Colosseum in Final Fantasy VI slash three? I still haven't. Uh, what is it? I still haven't progressed past the point of getting that guy who can suplex things. Oh my god! I I know. <laughs> I have it's this. Fine. I have the Super Nintendo hooked up, but I'm just like, now that I have a setup in which I can play my PlayStation a lot more regularly, and it's pretty comfortable playing my Switch. Like I've been catching up on the modern games a lot. Yeah, I and I also so. have a couple Steam games I bought that I haven't gotten into. I bought Hacknet on your recommendation, and I haven't played it yet. But I'm really excited, and I'm wondering if I try and get my dad to play because he's been coding with Unix for like 30 years or something. So I think he would find it very interesting to play. I wonder if he would just be like, "This is fucking child's play. This is a joke." <laughs> well, then he can speed run it. Yeah, basically. Um, on t- so aside from those criticisms, though, like the more and more I play this game, the more I realize just how fucking great the soundtrack and the presentation are. So I I have gone and seen like most of the areas, and I'm assuming the forest areas that you and Cookie were both having issues with. I don't know. I. I guess I can't sympathize or empathize with the issue issues you guys are having like i i don't know if it was just because i had the forewarning but i wasn't ever really bothered by like having the trees in the foregrounds that became transparent as you walked through them and such on the handheld i think it can be relatively annoying um on the big screen i have a lot less issues with it but i think just because cookie kind of levied that complaint i did notice it and kind of latch onto it um it is the only example of like graphical difficulty I've had with the game thus far, though. I love the winding construction of these paths. Like, This is a game in which you can really only move in the four cardinal directions, right? Or technically eight, if you want to talk about going, say, northwest, northeast, or whatnot on the screen. Uh, and yet, their maps feel like really well-layered because of the depth perspective 
and the fact that paths can sometimes be blocked by something that's just in your line of sight. And so you have to keep it eye to detail if there's a pathway that seems to go right through where it looks like there's a rock wall only to find out that there's actually a tunnel there or something of that that nature. Like I really like the map layout and for the most part, the density of objects on the screen are a benefit and not a detriment. The forest is the only place where I have like minor complaints. And I do, I do want to acknowledge that they're pretty small. So I had one little breakthrough once you get through the second or the first layer of quests and you get into some of the new environments and dungeons too. My biggest complaint about dungeon and path design was that everything was just maze paths and it got kind of stale. But as soon as you get into that second level or layer of areas, you start to encounter more wide open fields, whether they're like grasslands, deserts, snow, and then you like I remember going through Primrose's second chapter, that short dungeon she has to go through has paths that dissect and then intersect back together, which is like yes. believable. You know, you don't have a fucking cave or a castle that's designed in a way that like there's the only one walkway. path. Yeah, like yeah. Osha goes in there and is like, "Where's the fire escapes, guys?" I know. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about because I noticed it too when there is essentially you're moving to the right hand side in this small cave and you have like staircase, a small staircase etched into the stone for an upper path or there's a lower path. And I don't even think you miss really access to many treasures because the branching paths also happen after you've taken the upper or the lower paths or before it. Um, And so it's just like you're taking the high road or the low road, but it does not matter on how you get there and you don't feel like you've missed out and you really have to backtrack down the other path. I still did because of that paranoia that I will miss something. But I really, I, I noted that and enjoyed that there are more open and branching paths that let you just kind of explore a different perspective of the area without missing out on any extra items or loot. Yeah. The the music, too, like I noticed they switch the battle theme once you get into that second area. It's not as good as the first theme, but it's still, a you know, it's still good. Like those two well, facts the alone. The third area might be the best. Like that's the exciting thing. I'm assuming there might even be a fourth area if there's chapter fours, too. But who knows? We can, ac- we can actually talk about the gameplay because that's our main topic, which is JRPG or turn-based RPG mechanics and essentially how they've evolved and what they can like what has kept them fresh uh because honestly this is a genre that like once was the i mean maybe maybe it's not right to say this but it basically seemed like the biggest genre like in the mid 90s late 90s we had like final fantasy 7 that was definitely a huge or not the game itself but just that era was a huge high point and your turn-based RPGs or Japanese RPGs. And you could argue a bit before that too. I think it was a huge genre during the Super Nintendo. And then uh, I think, I, I feel like a little bit of it came back on the JRPG end with the GameCube as well. If we're talking just Nintendo, GameCube's same time as PlayStation 2 and whatnot. There's quite a few big name titles that came out again with turn-based RPGs. But... Um, 
they they really i i was introduced to them during the super nintendo era and then they really dominated a large amount of play that i did during the uh gamecube and like ps2 generation as well so i i think it's fair to say that they've been a solidified genre since like the super nintendo era and they they definitely i mean they they it's hard to speak about like the Nintendo era because, you know, I was single digits at that point in time. Me too. But like Dragon well, Quest, I, I don't even think I was Final born Fantasy when or originated came from there too. Uh, but like obviously, as we've gone further and further into into present day or into the future, like the identity of the RPG definitely seems to be on shaky grounds, especially when you look at like Final Fantasy 15 is far less turn-based and really, I guess, not turn-based at all at this case. Yeah, it's it's uh, RPG action at that point. I think we're watching titles that we thought would be kind of concretely in that turn-based RPG format, like really breaking from it. And I like it. I, I applaud it. I think uh, that there are games that definitely benefit from it. The Final Fantasy game that I played the most of when I was younger was, I was telling you, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, which was a real-time game. Uh, All of your actions essentially took place uh, in tandem with any sort of enemy movement or actions, and it was an open space and not, you know, a contained, like, battle screen with uh, menus and turns and grid-based combat or things like that. Um, but I do like that the turn-based systems we've kind of watched grow and develop down different paths as well on how we encounter turn-based games. Cause I think turn-based games can still be fun. We've, we've seen seven, f- like six generations of Pokemon seven now. I don't know where we're at anymore with the Pokemon generations we're very deep into them and they've been turn-based games at their core for the battle mechanic since the very beginning back in the nineties. Um, and so I think there is something to be said that like turn-based games are, can feel stale, but ultimately with like some refreshments and tweaks can feel still very new and fun and fresh. So I, uh, I've made kind of a list of games of note that I just thought like really changed up a format that made things more interesting to the, uh, like to our genre of turn-based combat. And the first one that I actually put on there is one that I don't have very much experience with that we just admitted maybe 10 minutes ago, which is Final Fantasy three, Final Fantasy six for American audiences. And I feel like, reading about that game there are a lot of different things that were implemented that seem to make it very memorable and enjoyable for players like you who have played the whole game from what i understand they introduced the job system in that game in so they introduced that into five if no no, no actually my bad my bad final fantasy three actual three in japan they introduced the job system so that was for the nintendo actually oh okay so I, I, I may have misread that then. But the other thing I did note for that, and I don't know if it's true for the other Final Fantasy games, is that Final Fantasy VI had the interesting use of like 
different inputs for characters. I think they were kind of the inspiration that you see for what is one of my favorite like RPGs, the Super Mario RPGs. Like the Paper Mario franchise are the ones that I'm most familiar with, but games in which selecting an action in a menu is not the last input you'll make before you have the transaction of dealing damage or um, defending and negating some damage or doing an action on the screen. Like you have to put in an, an, a directional input on your controller to swing Mario's hammer and release at the right point in time. And when you get to more advanced level play, you can then hit, say, the A button in Paper Mario a Thousand Year Door to do a backflip. And then if you hit it perfectly again another time, you do another backflip. And this nets you points for being more stylish and uh, like precise in your executions of commands. But in like Final Fantasy VI for American audiences, um, I don't remember the name of our suplex guy but like to do his attacks you're putting in directional inputs after you've selected doing his like combat correct yep Sabin uh and and for that matter every character has like a slightly different uh mechanic to him and some of which don't have necessarily any key inputs but they're so diverse in a way that like they they are basically like your classes like you had from the original Final Fantasy, but the the bigger difference, I guess you could say, is that uh, some of these characters had completely different... They're, they're no longer just menu-driven mechanics like Sabin, as you brought up. Uh, uh, is it Cyan or Cayenne? I can't remember <laughs> what, how his name's actually pronounced, but he's the Samurai. And okay, his mechanic yeah. is based off of a meter. So when you when you select his sword art or whatever it's called, I think it might actually be Bushido. Uh, a meter pops up on the screen and it starts off at zero or one rather. And if you stop it at one, then he does a specific skill. And as you get him stronger and stronger, he unlocks different levels of that. So from one to two to three. And if the meter goes up far enough, you can use those different skills. But uh, the the idea is that since this is a quote-unquote active battle system, I think is what ABS stands for for Final Fantasy, the more time you waste there, the more time enemies have to cast spells, attack you, that sort of thing. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of just the people that had like a u- the unique mechanics built to them. Because you had like Locke could steal things and Shadow can throw things, but those are still just menu-driven. Um, yeah. Um, and oh. like the guy who has the auto crossbow, you just like, that's a select attack all with a physical attack. Uh, may- maybe like the cool thing, one of the cooler things that came up, uh, cause again, like most of these characters just have recycled skill sets or attributes from older games, but you had, I think it's Gogo or Golgo. I can't remember for sure, but their, uh, their ability was to just mime or mimic, uh, so if you had a character do something, then they would mimic the exact same thing they would do. So if you have someone with like an amazing spell or whatever, or you have like multiple casts of that amazing spell, Gogo would mimic that exact action or actions. Uh, and that that's definitely, I don't think a game did anything like that, or a, an RPG, a turn-based RPG did anything like that up until that point. But it, it's also interesting because like Mario did such a good job of keeping like an active uh 
like forcing you to be actively like present in your battles because of those times buttons. And then a couple games later, Final Fantasy seven or excuse me, eight uh, did the same thing by introducing the gun blade with Squall, where you had to hit the right trigger. I think it was R one uh, at just the perfect time, and that would essentially simulate the act of Squall pulling the trigger on his gun blade as he's cutting through the enemy to deal bonus damage. Uh, and then, if I'm not mistaken, maybe the not so great thing they did is when you would summon, when you would do your summons in that game, which I think they were called guardians or something, you would have to button mash to get them to deal more damage, which that sucked. But eh. does anybody like button mashing? I feel like people are there are people who are proud of how well they can button mash, but I don't. I feel like it's I hate the mechanic a lot. I can yeah, see it, how it's fun in a like QTE in which you're button mashing because um, Vanquish is a good good game with that or like Asura's Wrath in which your character is literally like speeding up on their punches or their attacks on an enemy and so you're just button mashing and you're watching their momentum increase as they're doing more damage. I'm sure God of War has something similar to that too. Like God of War does a really good job with the like tactile feeling of QTEs. But um, when it's just button mashing to button mash, I feel like it is the most annoying thing in the entire world. But I'm also a slow masher. I, I, I would agree with you. I, I mean, I would even go as far as to say, like, I, I think button mashing as a whole is... Lazy? Just bad. And the only time it's better is if it's in a QTE. So, so like... I play a lot of games that have QTEs and I kind of hate QTEs at the same time because I think QTEs are like a poor way to like they're a, they're a poor way to illustrate your action Agency or as a player within a yeah. game. And and so part of this goes into the whole like the whole idea of games being accessible for people to play. It's like yes, someone with disabilities uh will not necessarily be able to play twitch shooters or first person shooters uh at the same level as someone who is perfectly capable like physically capable and so one of the reasons why i've always liked turn-based rpgs too is that it's the concept that like i don't have to be i i anyone can enjoy these games if you have the presence of minds you can play an rpg because most of the battle systems are simple or the control functions are simple enough in a way that you know i could play it with one hand um and the games that rely on QTEs, I think, kind of pro- prohibit a sol- like maybe it's a small number of people, but still a small no- like a, a group of people that don't necessarily have the reaction speed or the know-it-all with the controller to make those things happen. So in those yeah. cases, having like button mashing usually gives you more time to react, which I can appreciate. But at the same time, it's still like it's it's become the lesser of two evils in that case. But right. I don't think there's like a good way to to replace QTEs and those narrative type of games because if you completely remove it, then you're basically just playing a visual novel, uh, and I think the immersion there is even even less. Like there's there's an inherent problem there. Yeah. Uh, um. But yeah. Back onto the topic of RPGs. The uh, the next game I I wanted to actually bring up was um. Uh, Child of Light. Uh, that was the next one on your list. And for for the record, 
I will. I want to note that I've played a demo of Shadow of Light, so you'll have to probably go a little more in depth than what I'm capable of. That's fine. I've got 20-something hours on Child of Light, which is a much longer game than I ever anticipated while playing it. But um, basically, you're familiar enough with the battle system through the demo that the only thing that you're missing out on is as more characters get introduced, they have more impacts on the... They have a larger diversity of uh, attacks and effects that affect the battle system which is essentially a timeline in which you have a meter and for a large majority of the meter your character's speed is determining how far they progress down it and then they get to a stop point in which they're essentially charging an action up and said action could be something that executes very quickly and so I'm sure the internal math and the programming is that it gets a like times two or times three advantage to its progression through the meter, right? It multiplies against your speed. Um, otherwise, or, or it's a selection, like if you both select a normal speed and you both get at the meter at the same time, maybe it's a uniform speed that any character icon works through. That sounds a little less likely to me. But your character initiates an action, and if they're interrupted or an enemy character is interrupted in the middle of this second smaller bar before the end of it in which you execute, they are, in Child of Light, knocked backwards, um, essentially stunned back to the beginning of the first like ready bar, essentially. You go from the ready bar to the charging in action. Um, and so really talented players I think are able to juggle the actions that they take especially when the completed action has an impact by stopping an enemy on their turn through a stun so they're stuck somewhere on the timeline or just executing an attack quick enough to knock someone off of the charging stage back to the bottom of the ready stage or double the speed of someone on their progression through the bars, or uh, have the speed of someone on their progression through the bars. Like There are all these different effects on the timeline of getting to take attacks that are a lot more active than just uh, previous turn-based games in which the speed of a character essentially determines where they're at on the turn order. And to add to that, in the single-player mode, the single-player gets to control what is otherwise in the two-player mode, a secondary character called Ignis that can either expend freely acquired um, energy to minorly heal uh, allies or slow down enemies during any of their actions, whether it's their charging turn or it's their uh, readying turn on the meter. And it just allows for like a very large amount of complexity on the play of timing in a game that already has all of the other elements of um, basic disparities and stats between types of units, whether it's like defense or elemental defense, elemental attack, attack, uh, critical hit rates, things like that. Um, and I really like that. And I saw that it was inspired by a game called Grandia that I have no uh, background on, so I didn't want to talk about it, but just bring it up if people have some familiarity with that over the Child of Light game. Um, but from the demo, I think you get to experience all of that. But it's another example in how 
all of these mechanics that I like to see in these turn-based games are essentially doing the thing that uh, I think we spoke about many podcasts back where it is building a game type that is accessible for anyone, new players, but has extreme amounts of depth to very skilled players. It's the whole Super Smash Bros. You can button mash and be, you know, six or seven years old and have an amazing time, but you can also play melee and learn wave dashing mechanics and essentially play at a skill level that is unrecognizable to like beginning players, but both both people can have fun in their respective competitions or engagement with the game. In the middle of this, in the middle of that explanation, too, I did have that "oh yeah" moment with Grandia. Okay, uh, so yeah, you are familiar with it a little bit. Yeah, I, I do recall. I do recall like the timing or the the action bar. I guess you could call it. Um, yeah, I, and I didn't. I hope that the phrases I used for those meters made some sense but i understand that there's probably better terminology to use that i didn't write down no i think i think you did a fine job i i do like the i do appreciate that in child of light that what was it ignis is that the character's name the secondary character yeah ignis is the little firefly that you can use um essentially he like overlays the battle screen and you can direct him towards enemies or allies and also the movement of Ignis across the screen means that his actions can't be instantaneous either. Like you do have to move him between an ally or an enemy and from enemy to enemy. And when there's multiple enemies on a timeline or allies that need something, you can end up like swirling him around the screen, like trying to just juggle these micro actions in the middle of otherwise selecting things on menus, which I really appreciate. Yeah, it adds a whole different element or control to the to an otherwise menu-driven battle system. It's it's interesting because these games take on, like... Essentially, they don't feel that different in terms of, like, outside of gameplay. And in contrast, a, a series that is hailed as many to be, like, essentially one of the last best, like, JRPGs... Uh, would be Persona. And I, I find Persona, in a lot of ways, doesn't really change the formula of the battle system, but instead changes everything around it to to modernize it and make it more approachable for for you know people that did not grow up playing Final Fantasy on the Nintendo or Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior, uh, as it used to be called. And I don't know. like look Looking at the time I've spent with... Octopath Traveler, which utilizes this Bravely Default system more or less. Um, oh, wait, are you still with me, Scott? Yeah, I am. Uh, I just watched you fast forward. Like, yeah, it's d- ditto a here. Of dialogue. Okay, yeah. So, um, so looking at good. Octopath Traveler, where we have our Bravely Default system in play, where you can essentially conserve up boost points and so on, and the game relies a lot on boosts, debuffs, and so forth, uh, and and managing your bp in a way to maximize your damage output and minimize your intake i guess you could say it's hard for me to look at persona in the same light and say like you know what the battle system's great because the battle system isn't necessarily all that fun but because the presentation the vibe like everything else does so much that i enjoy playing that game even just from a mechanical standpoint 
there's so much like style that is injected into you just selecting an action uh in comparison to other games yeah i think that's totally fair it's like the presentation almost overshadows what you would consider a mechanical lacking otherwise and there are elements that i think are really wonderful for persona with their knockdown system being sort of relevant to uh the system that we encounter in octopath traveler and i think bravely default may or may not have had it where you essentially break an enemy to a point of maybe taking an action out of their turn or opening them up for vulnerable like attacks that they are more vulnerable towards i like that mechanic a lot it's another example of utilizing like control in a battle that you can otherwise overcome by like grinding or just really high damage output, but a more skilled player can play with a weaker set of units and manage a battle and be successful because of their mastery of those elements. Yeah, um, that that is and, true. That that knockdown system is one that we like. I I don't think I I know it probably came up in a different in another game beforehand in a different way, but that. That was something that made the game just inherently different. Yeah, it was others. very fresh when I played Persona. <laughs> it was very fresh when I played Persona Three to me because I hadn't experienced something like that before. Um, it, there's one thing to target an enemy's weakness, but it's another thing for that weakness to allow you to do more than just extra damage on that action. And there uh, were enemies in Persona as well as uh, Octopath Traveler where it's like their weaknesses actually don't damage them that much, but it's a way yeah. to knock them down and yeah, either that's do right. your all-out attack or use the free turn to essentially heal up. Um, the only thing I think that was worth noting about the difference between Bravely Default and Octopath Traveler for those mechanics is I also noticed that in Bravely Default, you're essentially defaulting or like passing a turn to utilize it later in Bravely Default. So you default to save up more BP and then Brave to use the actions later. I really like that Octopath Traveler made getting those boosts automatic because then it's more... I like games that there is essentially some sort of passive reward system for management as opposed to a much more um, like investment and return system in which like waiting turns is boring and you know it's it's sort of a waste of time in the game you can still expose vulnerability while getting advantages added to your characters there are ways to balance that without making a player skip a turn because no one wants to watch their units get beat up on for another one or two turns by enemies when you can just make enemies do more damage or expose weaknesses in less turns um so i really and, and they balance it too they balance it in a way that doesn't feel broken either because once you use the boosts, your boost points in a turn, the next turn you, you don't, don't get actually get another yeah. one. Yeah. They they definitely do a good job. Um, you, and you're absolutely right. Like, it's not fun to wait. So the fact you can do something... Like, quite frankly, I I find myself at times not doing my buffs just because it's boring to buff. And yeah, yeah it's not absolutely. smart. And when I face enemies that I need to buff, I will. But it's like, it's taxing otherwise. If I know I'm going to beat the boss or beat the enemy fine without buffing, I'm going to do it because buffing is boring. I'd much rather have it be like like something like in uh, Darkest Dungeon where I have a lunge attack that then gets me to the front of the p row or something and gives me like a buff or something on top of yeah, it. Yeah, 
pairing an action with a benefit is very nice. It's one of the reasons I actually really enjoy the merchants, uh, like hired help where you can hire people and then get a buff out of it with a damaging action. That feels really like clean and like a resourceful use of my, I guess, SP and turn versus just doing the peacock strut. Darkest Dungeon's like a great example of a fresh approach on turn-based RPGs, especially when it takes away so much control from the player in some respects. Or rather, it doesn't take away control, but instead, we're so used to having a variety of skills or abilities straight from the onset. And in Darkest Dungeon, you're limited to only having four, and sometimes less depending on where your character is. Like, it forces you to rethink the entire the entire battle or format of not only your team, but the way you play the game. You also relinquish, you relinquish control of your party in the sense that they have these like mental vulnerabilities. (laughs) Like you, you have to manage these players. You're treating them in a much more like organic or human way and how you interact with them in games like Octopath Traveler. I will make, you know, like if Alf, if Alfin has an attack which he does that does more damage when he's close to death i'll make alfin soak damage you know until he's at like 10 health in darkest dungeon getting that close to lethal health like that stresses everybody out and that's a negative outcome but in this game i can just be like alfin you gotta soak it buddy i need that axe attack (laughs) in two more turns so it definitely adds a new layer of party management that is i think just uh much more immersive in that sense like these aren't just pawns that you're using any I, they are pawns you treat them like pawns in darkest dungeon oftentimes but i do feel more attachment and like investment into characters and their well-being in that game because their well-being really matters to my success and their individual growth as units which later impact my success like it always yeah. comes back to consequence on the player but uh, maybe it's not immediately apparent. And so it gets to hide behind that veil of just being a more immersive component. The way it also weaves its story, if you want to call it a story within Darkest Dungeon, how it's like the dungeon crawling is not anything special or unique in terms of innovation it's unique because it's not often it, it kind of looks like a D dungeon board uh it's so very that, similar yeah that that part's unique in that you probably wouldn't have envisioned that type of game to to bring it up but then they essentially use the battle system screen as your dungeon crawling screen which works i don't necessarily give it credit of otherwise than being a minimalistic approach i guess um, I'm, I'm going to go back to Octopath Traveler for a second because I, I kind of, it kind of occurred to me as I was getting through the second chapters and realizing that all of these areas were technically open. They were just kind of being held back by a difficulty curve or a difficulty of monsters and so forth. But Octopath yeah. Traveler is kind of also like an open world turn-based RPG, like, Open world is maybe not the best term for it, but it's like the closest I can think of in a turn-based RPG because Final Fantasy 15 is arguably open world-ish, but it's then also like an action-adventure RPG as well. And I think that's another reason why I find Octopath Traveler so refreshing because I technically don't have any set 
like orders telling me to go someplace or I don't have one bridge to cross and one kingdom to locate and visit. There's no main storyline icon or like beacon that is just drawing your attention somewhere saying, hey, you don't, you don't have to go here, but this is where you want to go. Like, ultimately, you have to go here next. Octopath Traveler tackles that by saying, here's eight different directions you can pick. One of them will progress you further in that direction. If you ignore the other seven, they'll be there for you to tackle later. Like, whatever you want to do. It, it really is Skyrim in some ways that, like, I would otherwise feel uncomfortable suggesting because I don't like Skyrim or Oblivion that much after, after you know, having time to play and, like, dissect it more. Uh, I think the open world elements of those games... Uh, they can be they can be disappointing at sometimes, but I think that Octopath Traveler really indicates the strength sometimes of having an open world. If it's built in a way where there are a lot of different things that are accessible to the player early on, and you continue to just have this essentially like radial access to whatever interests you, in the same way that uh, Scott, uh, not Skyward Sword, I'm sorry, Breath of the Wild in Legend of Zelda had the ability for your character pretty much go to most any place at any level um, really impacted like players, individual experiences and enjoyment of the game overall. Cause ultimately you want to explore everywhere, but getting to choose what's most exciting to you first is such a satisfying feeling for a player. Dude, I didn't even visit the, uh, the Island village in breath of the wild. And oh yeah, yeah. The coastal, the coastal village with uh, all the fishermen and whatnot. Yeah, didn't didn't even see it. It, I and I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, like that's if, actually really neat that you missed it completely. If you were to think of it from a way of like, well, that just means that X number of players that I would represent don't interact at all with this piece of content that we designed so isn't that technically like inefficient game creation or game development yeah i guess but like you know in the same way that like not everyone is going to choose the badass shepherd side in mass effect so for the people that only do paragon all of our efforts put into renegade shepherd which by the way you you, everyone should play Renegade Shepherd at some point in time. It goes unused or like or unviewed, so it makes it like less efficient. But uh, but I appreciate the freedoms at which you can that in, in which you can take content or digest it or ignore it, uh, and in doing so, you don't feel penalized by it either. Whereas yeah, I've like never Skyrim, visited Florida, but it's okay that I've never been there. And I think that's sort of in that. Is it Luralyn Village? Like, that's the same kind of idea for you. You didn't visit Luralyn Village. You may have missed out on a little bit. But was was Breath of the Wild a great game for you? It was. And it's not because you skipped it or you saw Luralyn Village that that was the case. It, yeah, it's just, it's another reason to go back to it. Like, I still got a full experience from the game. And I kind of, I don't know. Maybe that's just to say that there is so much to do in Breath of the Wild that is already satisfying. Whereas I feel like the issue in Skyrim is that there is not enough to do. It doesn't feel saturated. Yeah. 
and like I feel I feel that same way with uh, Octopath Traveler, where it, it occurred to me something interesting was going on when I did a quest. Uh, Tiff's been watching me do most of the story of Octopath. I, I'll grind on my own and stuff. I did a quest uh, regarding or two 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 separate quests. One was letting. I'm sure you have probably done something to this extent too, but I'm going to. I'm going to keep details on the low just in case. Uh, one involves freeing a man from a prison cell because he claims he's innocent. And apparently you can just go and get the prison cell key from a drunk guard. Or you can actually get eyewitness testimony from people around the town. And so I got both. I got to the, I got to the prisoner and I was given two options, whether or three. I could leave... Or I could provide him with the testimony or give him the key to his cell. And I gave him the testimony because I'm not a It dick. makes him an innocent man, yeah. Exactly. So he gets out that way. But there's multiple solutions to, to at least a handful of these quests. Another one where it's a group of low, uh, like low class people, we'll say, uh, that are plotting a rebellion. And... You, you can, you you can, can technically, take their Tiffany weapons. Yeah. just went around and stole all of their weapons, stopping the rebellion in that case. But the other option is actually hearing about some lord's plans to essentially educate and try and integrate the slums into, like, the town proper. And, like, what's the difference between the two? One apparently doesn't give you a cutscene, as Tiff tells me, of the two of like the two leaders of the you know, the two sides of town essentially uh you know, reconciling. And I don't know, it, it's that sort of freedom that screams out like the equivalent of uh of like open world quest telling, be it Fallout. It reminds me of old Dragon school Age. Fallout. Yeah. Exactly. And like and the game doesn't ne- but like the game doesn't necessarily force feed you down the idea of you have two options instead it just lets you discover them on their own and i think that's like it, it's just yet another small thing that like i have not seen in traditional jrpg or turn based rpgs and i think fallout falls under that even though it's like grid based as well or movement like tactical based yeah but yeah, it, it's usually it's usually you're given the choices up front in a way, or the game like really lets you know about them. And there might be like a hidden third or fourth choice. But to to let the game trust that you're smart enough to explore the possibilities goes a long ways for me. And that like like I just said, yet another way that Octopath Traveler is like refreshing to me, despite being such an aged classical looking game uh with some modern enhancements in 3d it is just able to make me rethink what's possible for a pixel drawn or pixel uh based turn-based rpg it's beautiful yeah i think uh i think that kind of tackles it on that end uh, you ready to wrap? Yeah. Oh, actually, before I, there is one issue I have with Octopath Traveler, and that is the tearing effect that happens by the way they view the pixel characters as you zoom yeah. in and out or pan to the sides. Yeah. There, there had to have been like a better way to do that. 
I, j- I happened to notice that when I was on the Gold Coast or whatever, and I was wondering if it was supposed to be, if it was an intended effect uh, to add, like, because I was on the coast, and I'm like, is this, like, haze of sunlight or something? Like, is this rays of sun that I'm seeing, or is it just really bad pixel tearing that I just noticed now? Uh, well, you, you also notice it in battle when you're, like, rotating around the characters. You'll yeah, notice yeah, that you they're see pixels. It, it's, like, at a slant while they move the perspective or the angle. And you'll see the pixel morphing too, where like certain pixels in the character's face appear bigger or become bigger actually than other pixels because of the angle that it's located at. I, again, I, at this point, I really feel like I have to nitpick to say things that are bad about Octopath Traveler. But uh, that, that does bother me. Like every time I go into battle, I see that deforming pixel line or row of pixels and I just uh, can't get over it. Uh, if you have yes. comments, questions, or concerns about uh, Fancy Ramen's pixel tearing, you can go ahead and send us an email at uh, podcast at fancyramen.com. I was worried you may, might have forgotten it for a second there. You could also I, talk about <laughs> how our like, video chat is getting fucked up because of my bad bandwidth or bad internet service. I we were I was uh talking to some friends yesterday on Discord while we were playing League and we were shit talking someone's internet connection and uh it ultimately got reverted that the guy who lives in a secluded mountain town is shit talking someone about their internet connection. <laughs> yeah. And uh yeah, I kind of had to concede that point. So, you know, I always wonder how much of it is you and how much of it is me. Could be a little mixture of both. My internet's yeah. been doing better lately, but that does not that does not I make me feel any differently about getting upgrading so I can stream and stuff. I don't really have issues on my end, but when it comes to like big things like this, it seems to pop up. So I'm I'm really un- uncertain of how much is a contribution from my end. And uh, leave a like, suggestion, whatever below if you're on YouTube, or leave a review if you're using one of many podcast subscription services like Pod Stitcher, Bean Farm, or Podcast R you found Us. It, yeah. <laughs> and or, uh, if you want to do a verbal review to one of your friends go ahead and tell them about us and uh you know at the end of your at the end of your elevator pitch you can just yell five stars in their face so (laughs) uh thanks for listening guys have a good week everyone bye